This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everyone. Due to the generosity of our listeners and some contributors that we have, which we'll mention right now, Nikos, Sior, Jenny's, Ivan Rudik, Patrick Butin, and Will Wheeler, we made a little bit of spare cash, and we're going to give it all away. Alex, tell us how. <laughs> uh, so to help out uh, some of the job market candidates this year, uh, we want to help you uh, present your best self on the market. So recently, we heard Justin Wolfer say that now that we're in a Zoom world, a good microphone and a good camera is like wearing a good suit. Uh, and we want to help you. So what we're going to give away instead is a high-quality microphone and a high-quality camera uh, to someone on the market or to two different people on the market, actually. That's right. So we'll have a contest running for this episode and a contest running for another episode coming soon. And here is how you can win. So the first thing is you need to be a job market candidate. The second thing is to listen to today's episode and tell us Jen's recommendation of the week. That will tell us that you listen to the episode. And you can leave us, uh, what is that recommendation, um, as a voice message in our anchor page, or you can email us the answer at hiddencurriculumpodcast at gmail.com. In addition, we want you to tell us which one is your favorite episode. So just tell us Jen's recommendation of the week and what's your favorite episode at either hiddencurriculumpodcast at gmail.com or through voice message via anchor page. And we will put this in the show notes as well for this. Um, and also, Sebastian, you said another episode, which uh, you know, I'm pretty upset that you didn't use that opportunity to say next episode, which okay. is possibly one of the best songs ever made. So, Oh, which by who? Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Nate Dogg. This is so embarrassing for me. <laughs> someone else. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe I'll use that song to outro the segment. <laughs> I like it. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much and hope you can uh, win. Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Allingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. Hey, everybody. I hope that you had a good week so far. Uh, Sebastian, I want to know, A, how are you? And B, what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? Oh gosh, um, I am good overall. Although I, we, I just, I just had a meeting uh, with a new, a new project that I'm working on, where this has not survived the falsification test. So we're we're a little bit. Is that about the scariest that. movie? <laughs> that is a scary movie. Okay. Well, it it may All be right. it may be because we're doing something wrong, and so there is there's there's something to have a maybe potentially that that we can still use. So, um, but no, I think I don't. So I don't like scary movies. I don't find entertainment for being scared. Um, I think that the last thing that I was really scary that I remember was um, when I was like, I think five years old and I watched uh, Batman with the penguin. And that was really scary for me. Yeah, Danny DeVito is terrifying. Yeah. Um, but I think because of that, like I don't really watch the scary movies. Um, so I can't give you a really good answer. What, what about you? What's your scary movie? So I think like, it's not a scary movie, but it was definitely when I was a child too. And it was Labyrinth. So I don't oh, know if anyone's yeah. seen it, but like no child should see David Bowie like that. When they're it's like so Pan's small. Labyrinth, right? I mean, the, I don't know. The, if you so like, that's like a great high level movie. I, I don't know. <laughs> like maybe Labyrinth is, holds up. Well, Labyrinth know. is the one, the musical, right? It's like, you got my baby, that kind of song, I think. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't really remember. I just remember trolls and toilets and yes. being terrifying to me. Today, we're going to talk with the awesome Jen Doliak. We're going to talk about how she works. And we're going to talk about networking. Uh, so Jennifer is an associate professor of ex economics at Texas A&M University and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. She is also a research fellow at IZA and a research affiliate at the Institute for Research on Poverty, the University of Chicago Crime Lab, and the Wilson Sheen Lab for Economic Opportunities. She's also a senior fellow at the Nikasin Center. Uh, she studies crime, discrimination, and she's got a particular emphasis right now on prisoner reentry and the effects of technology on public safety. Uh, she also has an awesome podcast of Ooh. interest to applied micro folks, uh, Probable Causation, which is a wonderful name. 
Uh, and as you may have guessed, it's a podcast about law, economics, and crime. Uh, Jen, it's so great to have you today. Uh, how are you doing? And what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Uh, very excited to be talking with you both. I also don't like scary movies. So I actually finally just got myself to watch Get Out the other day because I oh. it's like build as a horror movie. Turns out not that scary. So I okay. totally could have watched it earlier. But um, <laughs> I had to like build up to this over many years uh, to prepare myself for it. So that is a uh, very good movie though. I need to watch it. Yeah, I, did, it I haven't excellent. watched it because I think it's scary. That's why. Yeah, it turns out it's not okay. really a horror movie. There are like so suspenseful parts though in the movie. Like, yeah. But if you, I don't know, I guess I, I watch a lot of like action movies like that. I, I don't mind. And so that, you know, it felt less suspenseful than that. Mm, mm, mm. So I can watch. You'll, you'll scary. be okay, Sebastian. Yeah. <laughs> I can watch scary <laughs> movies, but awkwardness, I can't handle. Like Ben Stiller movies are like, that's my version no, of like horror movies to you guys. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, Jen. So we also like to uh, have our guests share a fun fact about themselves. So what is your shareable fun fact? Um, the only thing I can talk about these days is that I just got a dog. Uh, I finally, like everyone else in the pandemic, got my pandemic <laughs> dog about a month ago. And she's a two-year-old pit bull lab mix named Chula. And she's super sweet. And I bring her to doggy daycare. And then I get to see pictures of her hanging out in kiddie pools <laughs> and playing with her friends. Wait, your doggy I'm... daycare sends you like, they like have a live stream? Oh yeah, they have like, uh, yeah, they, well, they're on Instagram um, mm. and, and or, and they have this whole separate Google, Google Drive of photos and stuff because all the doggy parents want to see this that's content. So and so, um, so amazing. I spend, that's what I do now when I'm taking breaks from work. I scroll through the Instagram feed yeah. to see any cute photos or videos of my pup running around. That's so much more positive than like scrolling through <laughs> normal Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. That's, that's right. I don't care what any of my friends are doing anymore. Yeah. I see <laughs> yeah. what toys my dog is playing with. <laughs> did you, did you adopt it? Any other like pandemic trend, like the bread or I don't know what oh. else? No, I got a boxing bag early in the pandemic because awesome. I, you know, can't really go to the gym anymore. So I have a Peloton and okay. really love that, but also like missed uh, the boxing classes. I Do used you to put take. faces so... on the boxing bag? I was joking on Twitter Referee that reports. I would do that, but uh, yeah, totally. Uh, one could for sure. But I, I have not yet, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, well, that's awesome to get to know you a little more. Um, but let's talk a little bit about your work. So is there a paper that you'd like to talk about or something that you would like to promote for our listeners? Sure. So um, I have a paper with Anne-Sophie Anker and Rasmus Landerstow on DNA databases uh, and crime that just got accepted a AJ applied. So we finally, yeah, you know, found a good home. Oh, uh, so it's fun. like... The very, yeah, happy, good news at the end of, of years and years of working on this project. Um, and so basically the paper is measuring the effects of adding additional criminal offenders to the government DNA database. Um, and the purpose of these DNA databases is like, if you've got someone who's in the database, their DNA can be compared to DNA from crime scenes. And so they're more likely to get caught for crimes that they might not otherwise have been a suspect in because now they're kind of like, if there's a match that can be sent to law enforcement and, uh, and law enforcement can go, oh, here's a new lead and go mm. investigate that person. Um, so basically we use a big database expansion in Denmark in 2005, uh, where that went from basically including almost no one in their DNA database to include any, including anyone charged with a felony. Uh, and so um, we could look at very similar people charged just before and after the expansion went into place uh, and went into effect and um, follow those people over time and see what happens to recidivism rates. And it turns out that the increase in the likelihood of getting caught, which the DNA database uh, imposes, um, mm -hmm. leads to a huge reduction in recidivism, like a 40% reduction in recidivism mm -hmm. um, for, for those people charged with a felony. So That's insane. big... Yeah. Big results, yeah. And, and like, what's you it? Know, connect, can you work. connect us the story yeah. or what's what's happening? Yeah. So, so the basic story is, I think, um, at least the way we're we're thinking of it yeah. is in line with uh, kind of a Becker model of crime, where um, you know the people consider the expected costs and benefits of committing a crime, and now the probability of getting caught has gone up. So the expected cost of committing a crime has gone up, mm. um, and so it increases deterrence. Um, and so, you know, it could be a more, slightly more complicated story than that and, and thinking right. about, you know, how people actually 
uh, make a decision. You know, you're not necessarily deciding in the moment to commit a crime, but you might decide whether or not to go out with your friends who are always getting into trouble. <laughs> and maybe you stop right. doing that once you're in the database. But, um, but in general, that's the model we have in mind. And was this like a slow progression? Like did, did people find out because it was like big news and then I react? Or do you think it was more of like, oh, now I'm seeing that my friends are getting caught because of this DNA thing. And therefore, or, you know, not my friends. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, mm-hmm. like, was it learning by social networks or learning by just the shock of information, I guess. If there's a way to know that. Yeah, so there isn't really a good way to tell how people uh, come up with whatever opinions they have about the likelihood of, of this, of being in the database leading to, um, mm-hmm. leading to their getting caught for more crimes. My hunch is that most criminal offenders are learning about this stuff either through their friends, their peers mm-hmm. who are getting caught or through like TV, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like all these crime shows have DNA databases and mm-hmm. your DNA is at the crime scene and like your photo appears on the wall or something. And it doesn't quite work that way in real life. Right. So I, I don't know how the Danish legal system works, but I feel like this is going to create a market for lawyers, defense attorneys, understanding Bayesian probability, right? Like, whoa, the false positive, <laughs> positive rate here. You just tested everybody. Mm. <laughs> yeah maybe we have not seen have not seen that uh in the u.s or or denmark but uh markets and everything you know uh we'll, we'll see how it evolves the other thing that i thought it could be really interesting but i think the n is so small it's like does it also help like solve like cold cases or get some people who were in preventative prison out more but I, my guess is that the n is so small that you can't even that with data detected is that fair to say so we can look, we know the timing of, of the offenses that people get caught for in the future. So one possibility is you see, a, you, you might see a big increase actually in the likelihood that people um, are caught and then maybe locked up uh, because they're getting caught for old cases, those cold mm. cases. And actually like that doesn't seem to be happening very often at all in Denmark. Um, this question of how often DNA in general gets wrongfully convicted people out of prison is a really good one. And is very difficult to study, mostly because we don't have we don't have a good sense of how many people are wrongfully convicted, and the people who are you know uh, represented by groups like the Innocence Project, it's a very selected sample of people. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it's actually really difficult to understand. It's a tough area to do research in. Um, but it is a you know this the types of questions you're asking are is kind mm-hmm. of uh, one reason I'm I'm. I'm I think very optimistic that these kinds of tools can increase the accuracy of mm. criminal convictions and re- potentially reduce racial disparities in a criminal justice system um, mm-hmm. to the extent that, you know, science is just going to find the right person. And it's not just whoever the police officer's hunch was, did it, uh, right. that surely will have benefits, but it's right. difficult to measure. So, uh, that seems like a good place to transition to uh, the first sort of topic of the day, uh, where we're talking about workflow. So something that Sebastian and I have talked about before, I, I, I don't actually know if it's on the podcast or not, is this really cool book by Mason Curry, where uh, it's called like how artists work, or actually it's called daily rituals, but it's about how artists work. Uh, so we were wondering if you could sort of walk us through in broad terms, uh, sort of what Mason does in his book is he just talks about like, here's what this one artist you maybe have heard of how a typical day goes for them. So how does a typical workflow work for you in broad terms, uh, in terms of like a day-to-day research operation? Yeah, so um, let's see. My whole work life is structured around my calendar. So I use a count cal- <laughs> like a very uh, complex color-coded cal- Google calendar as like my to-do list and to plan out my day and to keep track of how I've spent my time. So I do also track my time. Um, as just a way of like commitment device, especially as a senior faculty member and a woman who gets invited to or asked to do all kinds of stuff, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. figuring out what does they know do, right? I like to keep track right. of what I'm spending my time on. Um, but yeah, so basically like I will be, whether it's the, oh, by the time a week starts, I have probably had it almost set in stone from like a week mm-hmm. earlier, how I'm going to be spending almost every moment of my day. So do you um, use like, Sorry to cut you off there, but yeah. when, when do you like set that up? Is it the Friday before the week or is it like you're a savant and it's like a month ahead of time? Or like, like... Yeah, there's a little elf that comes in. And... Yeah. It's Chula. Chula is doing this. Yeah. Chula does it. Yeah. Very well-trained dog. <laughs> um, so it's sort of a work in progress as I have stuff that I know I need to do because mm-hmm. it like functions as my to-do list. Um, 
it also helps. So, I mean, you know, one way this can be useful is that like, if I agree to do a referee report or something, I put it on my calendar, like block the two or three hours or whatever, and the hour to write it up. And like, so it also uh, makes it very salient to me what I am right. agreeing to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I try to block off time for writing stuff. Like I try to have an hour or two every morning to write, although that is a constant battle, especially in the COVID era. Yeah. Uh, to protect that time. And just a small um, detail, when you say write, mm -hmm. you mean write papers or write for, because you write a bunch of non-academic uh, papers, you used to write a bunch yeah. of stuff like that. So it's just general writing or academic writing? So ideally academic writing, ideally okay. the stuff with like the long-term payoff, but no short-term deadlines, All <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, yeah, and then everything else I try to fit into like mid to like late morning and, and afternoons. Um, Do you also schedule breaks or like, you know, like, cause you have so many responsibilities and things. So like, sometimes when I do that, I feel like, oh, I want to do this, but I'm so tired that I'd have to like push it, even though this is my calendar. So I try very hard not to push things. This is why it's like very helpful for me to like. <laughs> Clap. I'm yeah, clapping I mean... audience, I'm clapping. That's amazing. That's really, I mean, that's really because it makes a difference. Of... I mean, part of what keeps me honest about this though, is that, like, I've got my calendar basically like filled up in any, like, you know, today, if after this, I'm sure I have something on my calendar for the hour that's left in my workday. And if I decide, oh, I just don't have it in me to do that, I've got to find somewhere else to move that mm -hmm. thing to. Mm -hmm. And at this point, the, certainly the rest of my week is booked and probably the most of next week. And so where am I going to put that? And I just, and then, so I often will like look for a place to move that to. And then mm. I'll just be like, oh, forget it. I'll just do it. Wow. <laughs> so I, this is like my dream to have this thing work out, but I've never <laughs> been able to get it to work. This is like discipline. Like that's, that's a really yeah. good discipline to be honest. I, I, I have to commend you for that. But anyway. my, my number one problem, I think, in, in addition to just like over committing to things, is like not accurately predicting how long it will take to do mm -hmm. any given task. Is this something you feel like you've gotten better at across time or like, like could you talk yeah. a little bit about how do you, how, yeah. how you, like you mentioned referee report, like you had a set number of hours, but like, how do you do that for like other tasks? Yep. So, um, so one, I think I have gotten slightly better at predicting amount of time Two, I also have just, I find it useful for me to say like, look, I've got one hour to do this thing. And then like whatever is done in the hour, that's, that's it. <laughs> so like I just like pressure. get it done. You know, right. there's some kinds of stuff where you know, like writing an op-ed or whatever, like that kind of stuff, like that could fill days if I let it. Um, right. But it probably really just needs an hour to get a solid draft that I can send to somebody to read over. Um, mm -hmm. And so if I like force myself to do it in an hour, it'll get done in an hour. Um, for stuff like research there, like I, my to-do list and like the time I block in my calendar is very much like time. It's not an, right. it's not an item. It's not a task. Right. And so I'm going to spend two hours on this paper in the morning. I might get nothing done in those two hours. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I might just be spinning my wheels or I might make a ton of progress, but um, because research is the most unpredictable about how think, long it's yeah. going to take. That, that's a really useful concept. Uh, one of my friends in grad school had this like quote above his computer that said something to the effect of, the amount of time it takes to do a task fills the space we allow for it. Totally. And like, I, I don't know if he had that up there as a reminder not to overcommit, but I always thought it was funny <laughs> that he had it up yeah. there. Yeah. No, I mean, in general, I find that I am just like way more efficient when I am slightly overcommitted <laughs> because like uh -huh. the stuff just, it does, it fills the space you have it. And if I like start saying no, there's like this weird optimal equilibrium where it's like, well, if I, if I'm slightly overcommitted, I kind of wish I were less, I weren't overcommitted, but then if mm. I were op, if I were like perfectly committed, I would just like waste more time on Twitter or something. And so <laughs> it's, I don't actually wind up with more free time. So. Right. You um, mean enjoy time yeah. on Twitter, right? Not <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. It all depends on who you follow. <laughs> one, <laughs> one quick thing you mentioned that you did some, some time tracking. Do you just like write that in a notebook or do you have like an app or something for that? So I, because so much of my workflow and, and I already track my time on, on my calendar, um, basically I, I like searched the internet to see if there was any way I could just export from my calendar. Oh. Um, and it turns out there is. So there's this okay. app called Time 
time tackle, I think they were just, they just changed the name. Uh, so uh, some company allows you to just export your Google calendar. And since I have everything in these like separate calendars, it's perfect. And so I, I have a Google spreadsheet where I, I just like export it by the week and then just copy it into the Google spreadsheet. It's a little bit, it's not totally automated, but um, gotcha. that awesome. works for me. Yeah. So, so I like this, it's like Stephen Covey idea quite a bit of like the most important task or the big rock or like whatever it is you want to call it. Um, and that's like some people use this idea where you can think of like saying this week during your like unstructured research time, I want to do like thing A and B is what I want to work on. Is that how you decide what to do during that time? Or do you have like some other, like what, I guess, what system do you use? Or is there a system to decide like, what do you do during that like very special protected research time? Yeah. I usually have a specific paper that it's like uh, next on my to-do list and is the priority. And then like my co-authors are gonna kill me if I don't spend <laughs> some time this week working on the, the paper. For most of my projects at this point, I'm not the data person, I'm the writing person. And so um, it really is like writing time. Um, and, and for me, certainly probably somewhat for everyone, switching costs are really high. So I try really hard to switch between projects as little as possible. So I won't go do like, you know, one morning on this paper or the next morning on a different paper, unless I really just needed like the one morning to get over whatever the hurdle was. Um, but uh, yeah, it's usually trying to like get some writing done on mm -hmm. the next paper on my list. Okay, so is it like fair to say you're like, you've got an ordering of paper priority or something to that effect and you're like, I'm gonna work on this thing until it reaches some working paper stage or submitted stage or something like that. And then next up is like sort of how it works. Like in general, is that fair or is there? It's more so, so there's more switching than that, unfortunately. Um, but it tends to be like, you know, I'll spend a few mornings, whatever writing mornings I've been able to pr protect during a given, a given week, I'll try to do like the full week on one paper mm. and, and sort yeah. of, you know, or at least get it to a point where then I can like, hand it back off to my co-author, right? Like it's usually just trying to get it to the point where I can get it back off my desk and then turn to the next thing. But yeah, it's usually not like until it's done like that just, yeah, it unfortunately takes too long. That's helpful. <laughs> I just, something that I like concerns me is when I, I like to listen to all these productivity people or whatever. Mm -hmm. I feel like they don't actually tell the truth a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Or they're yeah. superheroes. I don't know. So it's helpful to hear like, oh, I like work on the intro and then I give it back to Sebastian or something. Like, Jen, Jen seems to be lending one of the superhero. Like yeah. She's able to do, do her stuff. You know, lots and lots of trial and error. It's it's funny. I also am a total sucker for this, like the productivity oh, really? literature. Yeah. Uh, the War of Art is one is like my yes. favorite of these yes. books. So Pressfield good. Rocks. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it really is just like one of these, I, yeah, I love the, the idea of resistance and just like having to like fight through mm -hmm. it. And, mm -hmm. um, and just the idea that you just have to like sit down and like do the work. Right. And like, that's so much of this is just like writing right. is hard. Right. And so you just have to sit down and get a bad draft on paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, switching gears. Another thing we want to talk about is, is networking. And we know that's like a, I think something I want to say you've excelled at. Um, and so let's, let's start maybe a little bit with your story with networking, how your perspective and approach on that has evolved. I don't know if, if it's helpful if you want to start with a definition. Maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. Um, sometimes people like doing that, but I'll, I'll let you take, take the lead on that. Sure. So, um, so when I think of networking, I really just think of like building relationships with people. Um, I think a lot of, I think networking often gets a bad rap and people are scared of it because they think of it as this like transactional thing that's really painful that they have to do for work. Mm. Um, and uh, I agree that is, that sounds awful. <laughs> I would not want to <laughs> yeah, spend yeah. time doing it. <laughs> but I really like meeting interesting people and mm -hmm. it turns out that's what networking is. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I... I am very much an introvert, uh, like most academics. And I think a lot of people are surprised by that because at this point I tend to take on sort of a social organizer or community right. builder role <laughs> in whatever community I'm in. Um, but I think I just, I like remember having this, this kind of realization when I was in my twenties that like, especially in these kinds of circles, like everyone is sort of socially awkward and introverted and none of us were the cool kid in high school that like- Wait, what? Had a zillion friends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, 
So in any sort of academic setting, like everyone's just standing around awkwardly hoping someone else will come up and say hi to them mm -hmm. and start the conversation. And so like, if you can like work up the nerve to be that person that goes around and says hi to people, then you're like, you're the hero at the conference. And mm. it's, uh, and it turns out most people are not that scary. And most people are perfectly <laughs> nice and interesting to talk to, especially in academic settings, because right. we're all like doing cool research and are excited about what we do. So, um, so yeah, just kind of like forced myself to do that. And I think. Was that, uh, was there like a point yeah. in time where, where that was a shift or that was just natural progression towards, you know, the introduction? Of I, so it's funny, like I, I was thinking about this just like before this conversation, because I was like trying to think back. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I definitely yeah. remember it being a very conscious effort oh, and transition okay. that I was like, mm. I need to like figure out how to get better at this. Mm. Um, mm. And at this point, it feels totally natural to me. Mm. But I think it's because I spent a lot of time like forcing myself to do uncomfortable things mm -hmm. and learning that it's actually like nothing bad's going to happen. And actually, usually people are grateful that you're the one who came over and said hi first. Um, yeah. and so now, uh, you know, and like, and I like organizing stuff, but I think part of it, that is also because I realized like other people love it when you organize stuff. Right. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just, if you have a bunch of good, mm -hmm. if good things happen when you like go out of your comfort zone, then you mm -hmm. are more comfortable doing that further. Yeah. And unless the person you're talking to is like a third year PhD student who then the topic you don't want to bring up is how's your dissertation going? Yeah, right. <laughs> People yeah. love to talk about their own research. Yeah. Right? Totally. Yeah. That's so or, true. or at least they're capable of talking about it. So if you're in that situation, Absolutely. you're like, I don't know what to say. You'd be like, Hey, what are you, why are you at this conference? And then Absolutely. Exactly. If you're at a conference, it's the easiest thing. You'd be like, what's your name? <laughs> right. Why are you, are you presenting or just consuming? Um, and then, yeah. What do you work on? Mm -hmm. uh, what are you excited about right now? Right. Um, you know, I think we all kind of get good at this too. When we have like visiting speakers come through the department and we have to mm -hmm. have like a 30 minute conversation and everyone, I think like has some sort of like stockpile of questions they can ask to keep the conversation going for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And those are basically the same questions that I ask at a conference. <laughs> it's right. like, what are you working and, on? What are you excited about? <laughs> and I think this is just like a straight tip for people who are going on the job market and preparing for those one-on-one -on -one interviews. It is not a mistake to ask this different people the same question. Like, totally. like that's fine to do that. It's, I think that's you could get the only way to do it. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and I, and yeah, I think, they're not gonna compare notes later and be like, wow, so unoriginal. She asked me that right. too. <laughs> yeah. And I think also, you know, when you're asking these questions, like I, I would say, make sure you're paying attention. Like you, you, you wanna ask these questions <laughs> because you legit wanna know the answers, not because this is an automatic, I need to ask this question to this person, like, blah, blah, blah. And like, mm -hmm. if you're not, I, I think people maybe notice when you're not engaged in a conversation. And so if you're going to start a conversation, like, just know that you should be engaged um, and, in it. Oh, totally. Oh. I have like a really wholesome, relevant story here. So at, okay. I don't remember what year it was, but it was like two or three years ago. I was at AEAs with one of my friends who was a graduate student at the time. And uh, Paul Milgram just came over and was oh. like, hey, how are you? Tell me about your research to my friend who was a grad student and his name tag was turned around. Okay. And then when his name tag like flipped eventually over, like my friend kind of freaked out a little bit. <laughs> but like oh. you can do, you can, like it made his day like right. a week or something yeah. to have that happen. So that's awesome. Oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah. So uh, thinking about all, all these things of, of going and introducing yourself, do you think you have some tips or some considerations about things not to do when it comes to networking that you maybe seen some people do and you were like, oh, maybe that's not, you know, so kosher, you know, you know high variance? I would say the stuff is probably going to be, well, one, what you just mentioned, like making it, like if it's obvious Robotic. that you don't care, that <laughs> <Right. laughs> you're not actually interested in this person you just you're talking to mm -hmm. uh the other thing is the cliche networking event thing where you're like constantly looking around the room for someone cooler to talk to like people mm -hmm. notice that and it's awful and like no one you heard it here first guys don't <laughs> yeah. be that person you know yeah. so it's just a lot of just like be a decent human being and like you know the goal here again is to build relationships and make friends uh honestly like you just want to stone like especially in academia, like it's such a small world. You will mm -hmm. see all these people again and it is great. This whole thing is way more fun if you have like buddies that you see mm -hmm. at conferences. I think it's fine to be strategic too. 
right? It's like, if you're like at a networking event and you're like, okay, like this person is here, like, I'd really like to get their opinion on something, yeah. mm. but don't make that the case where you then like become a weirdo, crazy person, like following them around or something like, you know, I don't know. It's okay. To talk to them <laughs> and just yeah, literally so I, say like, Hey, I'm don't, here. I, don't I'm follow Jen you. around. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, yeah, I guess so what I, I mean, yes, yeah, you could go up to Jen and be like, I want to talk with you. Like, that's okay. Yeah. 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 Or like email me and say, I work on crime. I would love to have third, like if you have 30 minutes for coffee, I would love to do that while we're at this conference. Great mm -hmm, idea. Yeah. Definitely do that with, you know, whoever it is that's in your field. Yeah. So I guess I should be a little bit, um, better about giving like real advice to junior people that are thinking about networking here. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not, all right. So it's, it's partly about making friends, but it's also partly about like the, the thing a lot of junior people are told early on in their careers is that you need to make a list, a list of potential letter writers and get to know them. Right. And then a lot of people are like, how the heck am I supposed to go? Like, I need to go get to know Paul Milgram. Like how, <laughs> he's busy, you know, like how do I do this? Right. And so, uh, yeah. So there are ways, there are strategies, right? Like one is um, if you have a seminar series in your department, uh, most departments know that one of the main reasons or uh, purposes of these seminar series is to bring senior people in for the junior people to meet. So they, sh your department should be letting you invite people and make sure you're inviting senior people in your field. Another thing that worked super well for me um, and that I recommend to everyone is I would organize um, one or more sessions at the regional econ meetings. So the Southerns, Westerns, Midwesterns, mm. Easterns, uh, they're usually in nice places, often nicer places than the AEA meetings. And, um, and they're much easier to get into. So if you put together a decent session, you're almost guaranteed to get in as opposed to the AEAs, which are now like super competitive. And as opposed um, to and, submitting your paper on your own too, which I think- And yes, and like don't submit your paper just independently because you'll just get stuck in some random session and that's like just good general outside of networking advice is like you have yeah. a low probability of getting in with a single paper. Always Even try to like be a part of a session. amazing paper, don't yeah. take it personal. Just like submit it. Right, session. right. And plus, yeah, I mean, you're just more likely to wind up in a session where you've got other good work too and you're going to get good feedback and all that stuff too if you if if it's a an organized session that someone has put together. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about everyone loving an organizer. It turns out mm -hmm. this stuff is not hard but everyone else appreciates when someone else does it. And everyone is flattered to be invited, even if they can't go to the thing. And so don't hesitate to put together one of these sessions uh, and invite some senior people and some junior people. It's good to have a mix. And actually what I would do is, is organize three sessions and I would request the, that the, um, the conference organizer do, if, if at all possible, try to put them back to back. And so that we could just have like a mini crime conference oh, at whatever conference this was. Nice. And then we'd like go out for drinks after or have a lunch or like whatever was convenient mm -hmm. as a group. And then it meant, and then I would like rotate the speakers through to be discussants in the other sessions. So everyone would like have to stick around. Uh, and then I was like guaranteed to have like 12 awesome people studying mm -hmm. similar topics together. Um, and it was a great way to meet people. It was a great way to kind of build community. And it really was not hard. That's um, awesome. That's so that's sort of like my main networking tip to people. That's a really good tip. I have not yeah, heard that. I have not heard of that. Yeah. How successful have you been in doing that, the combo of the two or three sessions? You would say like- Very successful, yeah. Okay. No, that's I mean, it. it's almost- super interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think there was, I, I'm pretty sure there was only like one time that the sessions were not put back to back. Right. And I think it was probably just right. like, they, lost, they right. deleted my email or something and forgot. It's usually the- the regional meetings are just less, there's just less going on. So it's easier for them to kind of build things around the organized sessions mm, um, than to try to do and something the topics like that. The too, AAs. I guess, because you help them with that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mean, now, I think like they, they really like having these organized sessions already done. Right. Because they're mm. guaranteed some decent right. sessions at the meetings. That yeah. So at what yeah. stage in your career did you start doing this? Because a thing that I found really surprising to me was just how everybody seemed to know not necessarily this idea of stacking sessions but just that like you need to submit a session instead of a paper yeah. i had no oh idea gosh. until i was like a second yeah. year professor yeah it was probably like second or third year professor <laughs> um that uh yeah because i definitely presented as a one-off uh paper a couple times and was like wow that was not very useful <laughs> like it was just sort of like you know not a good experience and i didn't meet anyone interesting in my field or whatever um 
but there's no reason you couldn't do it your first year. Like, I think it's just a right. great way to get your name out there. Um, like I'm having a lot of conversations with people like junior professors now about how to network, especially in this weird COVID era where there's, mm. there are no conferences, right? So like, right. this is advice for like back when we we're in normal times uh, mm -hmm. and you can go places again. Um, though I do think that even now, you know, those conferences are still happening. They just might be online. And so you can still get some of the value of the networking. You can have right. like the, the session and get good feedback from other people. And in some ways it might be easier to get some people to attend because it's just virtual. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't get the benefit of having lunch with everybody or having drinks with everybody or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so that, yeah, that is something anyone can do at any stage of their career. The other advice I'm giving a lot these days is just like cold email people, kind of like what we were talking mm. about earlier. Like yeah. if there's someone that you would have loved to have met at some conference, but those conferences aren't happening anymore. Just send them an email and say, you know, I really admire your work. Everyone loves being flattered, right? Like just say, <laughs> I really admire your work. Yeah. And uh, I do work in the same space and I would love to get your feedback on a new project idea or tell you a little, a little bit about what I work on. And I don't know, you can come up with some yeah. way to, but like people get why you're doing this, right? You don't have to uh, try too hard. Um, and would you have 30 minutes for a, a call over Zoom sometime? Right. And, and let me yeah. let me just say that I, I recently did this. I there's a grant that I wanted to apply, and and there's some people that I not really knew, but at least knew by name ish, and we met a couple of times. And I sent an email saying like, "Hey, you were successful in getting this grant. Do you mind having like a you know 20, 30 minute conversation?" And they were very kind in giving me their time, and I was like very surprised. And now I feel like I know this person a little bit more. So thank mm -hmm. you. And, and so, anyways, that's just a case study of, of what you're saying. Of totally, yeah. And don't be offended if they don't get back to you. Like some people are busy, right. their inboxes are out of control. Like don't, yeah, don't take it personally. Right. <laughs> but I, my hunch is most people would be, worst case scenario, they've seen your email and their name is, your name is now in their mind, which is already a win for you, right? right. Part of, especially if we go back to kind of the letter writer challenge, part of the challenge is like, you just need to be like on these people's radar mm -hmm. so that over time they get to know your work. And this is like, maybe too idiosyncratic. Um, but something that I didn't realize when I was going up was that at my particular institution, the rule for letter writers was a little bit different than a couple of my friends when they went up. It's like people that need to be at arm's length. So you couldn't have any co-authors oh, be letter writers. Yep. Uh -huh. Whereas other places you could have co-authors. So just like, I, I don't want people to be yep. like too strategic and crazy, but just like do understand your own idiosyncratic right. your homework. Like what's going to matter for you and a letter writer if we're going up for tenure? Because if it's only like, if you can include co-authors, you don't need to be doing as much of this. Although Our co-host from podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. Still, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you still like, you know, if your department's going to put together a list, it's still good for you to, to have yes. met and get That's to true. know on some level, everyone who kind of works in your space who might be asked to weigh in. But, totally. um, but no, totally agree with you. Like if you're a new faculty member somewhere and you're not, 100% sure what the requirements are for a letter writer, go get that's in writing somewhere. You should go look it up. Yeah. Like I did not realize it had to be a full professor, but now on the other yeah. side, that's like hilariously obvious. I should have known that. <laughs> and like, I was getting to know people that were like newly associate professors being, Oh, they'd be like a good letter writer. And then yeah. one of my mentors was like, no, like they're not going to be full professor. <laughs> no. But they're probably yeah. still great to know. Oh yeah. I've <laughs> benefited a lot from the experience, but it's just like, yeah, I yeah. didn't even know. Tying things back, like I, for example, when I started doing quote unquote my networking, I started very much at my peer level. Like when I was a grad student, I kept meeting a bunch of grad students. What's really cool about that is that it feels a lot less intimidating, but at the same time, those people, they grow with you and they become people that have totally. power. So, so if, if you feel like you're a little bit shy, you can start at the level and slowly build up your confidence to hire people. And then you can get to, um, to a gen level and, and come up to gen and be like, <laughs> hi, I want to talk to you. <laughs> No, it's so true. There is like, you know, I used to wonder, uh, you know, people would give advice about how you should submit papers to journals based on who the editor is and what that specific mm. editor likes in a paper. And I was like, how the heck am I supposed to know what these people right. like in papers? Like, I don't know them. And now I'm getting old. And so I have <laughs> friends who are editors, right? And yeah. it's like, oh, well, of course, like I know what they like in papers because right. we're like buddies. Right. And so, um, yeah, getting to know peers is super important. Totally agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Um, Let's ask a question that I feel like everyone wants 
us to want us to ask you, which is uh, your big Twitter personality, which comes mm. with goods and bad. How how do you? I mean, you're obviously you're very pro Twitter, and so like, how what's the math in your brain about? Okay, there's some good stuff, there's some negative stuff, and here's how I handle the negative stuff to mitigate, you know, those 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 things. Um, yeah, I should have led with that as my networking tip. Get onto Twitter. Right, oh, <laughs> Twitter is wonderful. Uh, everyone's really generous. Okay, so my I think my main the main thing that I do now that is probably different from when I was just starting out is I block people really quickly if they're okay. a jerk. <laughs> like I just, I have like no time for people who are super negative. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly if someone like insults me, mm-hmm. they're out. Like I'm just like, mm-hmm. I have no time for it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, similarly, I, this is more of a perhaps idiosyncratic thing. Maybe people okay. don't like, you know, don't mind this as much, but I have no patience for people who are just like pure advocates, like are not, who's like, you know, oh. are getting paid to for their mind not to be changed by the evidence, okay. <laughs> essentially. Like gotcha. I just, that's just not what I'm there for. So I'll block gotcha. those people too. Um, gotcha. But so, I mean, I think part of what's great about Twitter is you can kind of, depending on who you follow and who you block and don't let into <laughs> your little ecosystem or whatever, you get to yeah. really shape the culture that you experience. And mm. so, right, yeah, feet. like, I mean, they're, yeah. And so like there, it's, it can be, I mean, I think in general, econ Twitter is just such a warm and generous place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, like, I, I mean, I, I work on some controversial topics. And so inevitably, right. like, put papers out there where people give me a very difficult time on Twitter about right. it. And, and I'm sure there's times where you read some of the difficult questions and maybe you get some benefit of like, oh, I haven't thought about it this way or, or something like that. Like, I oh, guess, sure. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, just to, one, just to make sure that, that that's, yeah. I mean, one, one great thing about Twitter is you can like get feedback on working papers. And it's like the best, like mini seminar ever, right? You put a, a thread out there, people get a sense of what your paper is, and they'll ask you really great questions. And that's, you know, again, that's a benefit I think primarily of econ Twitter. Um, I think I just, I mean, I think I have probably a thicker skin than some other people. <laughs> um, you build that I up, think right? My yeah. main, yeah. I mean, I think my main strategy is like. Yeah, I block the people who are actively insulting or like not interested in having like a good faith mm-hmm. discussion about this thing. Um, and I also just sort of realized that like, you know, part of the reason all these people are weighing in is because I have a platform and people are paying yeah. attention. And that makes other people angry sometimes. That do you do you feel like that's a responsibility to me? You feel like that's a responsibility, quote unquote, that you have a platform? Like you know, like with great power comes great responsibility, and then Ooh, that, I don't know. Is that Batman? Ooh, that's Spider Man. Spider Man. Ben, ben Parker. <laughs> All right, I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Jeez, see myself out now. Yeah, I'm offended. <laughs> More noise. I'm offended. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is just like, uh, particularly being a woman in the, you mm-hmm. know, who's part of like the public conversation. Like I do engage in difficult and sometimes heated conversations around the criminal justice policy space in particular. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're going to do that, anyone is going to get, anyone right. in that position is going to get pushback. But I think especially women and people of color get just like so much garbage thrown at them. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to, like, you have to figure out a strategy. Either you can like read all of these mean tweets and go cry or you can block everybody and like go on with your life. And I've chosen the block everybody and go on with my life uh, avenue. There are, like that's successful for sure. And I don't get into many like Twitter debates um, about anything, but I've, another strategy that I've seen has been um, definitely a less controversial topic or what I would think of as a less controversial topic is Jason Abeluk. And if you want to see somebody that like tries really hard to oh. engage with people that have different comments, Amazing. go check out his lives, live tweeting, I don't know the right way to phrase it, of a paper that basically was saying like, hey, look, doctors make a lot of money. And you will see oh, yeah. someone that really trying hard to engage oh my gosh. with med He's, Twitter or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. The other person yeah. who's very patient on Twitter in this way is Dina Pomerantz. Yes. Um, mm. It's just like very, like someone says something really inflammatory back and she'll just like ask a very sincere, like tries to just yeah. like kill them with kindness and ask them like to explain and like elaborate and all this stuff. And eventually they often have nice conversations that I just like, yeah. don't have time for it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an enormous time investment on their part. So <laughs> yes. I don't want to diminish that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Those, I also have to say that a lot of those like back and like, you know, Jason has a back and forth with, with um, Judy Pearl, right. On, on the whole like DAGs uh-huh. and, and the inference. 
I like personally feel like I learned a lot from their discussion, even though I will never intervene on it. Um, and you know, and again, like you may, some people may see their perspective of like, oh, this is what's bad about Twitter. But actually, I learned from that, right? Like, even though it's it makes my it makes my head hurt, but at the same time, it makes me think and maybe understand things things better. So. Uh, sometimes it's all it's it could be about perspective of like okay maybe you think this is bad but are you, if you're learning from it then there's something good about it um which totally. is why I, i'm in twitter because I, I feel like i get a lot of value out of it yeah well and i think those kinds of conversations it really is a public service to kind of have to like step through i mean sometimes these are just smart people having a conversation and they don't care about who's reading it right. <laughs> but a lot of times like you have people who are like you can't say that correlation doesn't equal causation. And it's mm -hmm. like a well-identified causal study, right? And then whoever it is that takes the time to step them through how the causal inference piece worked, that is a public service to like educate the people who were coming at this without, you know, that perspective. Um, I do though often think back to, I, there was some discussion of this and someone had just like spent a huge amount of time trying to educate, educate various people on Twitter about, you know, why, the RD was actually a good cause estimate or whatever. Okay. Uh, and Shelly Lindbergh said something like, it's not your job to teach econometrics to every idiot on the internet. Oh, gosh. And that, and I remember that wow. all the time. Like you can, mm. if you want to do that public service, that is wonderful. Right. But signing onto Twitter does not obligate you right. to do that public service every day. Right. You so you can just choose not to engage sometimes. The, the other only other tip I was going to add is for folks who um, who want to who are thinking about like other networking things to do during the current COVID era. I've been experimenting with gather.town, which oh, I think at least yes. Sebastian has tried. Have you both yes. tried it? Uh, so had a bunch of like crime econ friends get together Friday evening on gather and it was super fun. And again, easy to set up any junior person who wants to do it. Just send an email and a link out to a bunch of people that you'd like to see and like people will show up. So awesome. that's my other tip. We'll put it in the show notes too. All right. So just to <laughs> summarize from the day. So first we talked about uh, sort of the ideal day or maybe actually your real day because it seems like you have managed to make those two things converge. Um, <laughs> so Jen uses a calendar to sort of do it all. She uses it to track her time to put on there her protected research time in the morning, but everything comes with a cost. So she <laughs> has serious discipline and puts a lot of effort into maintaining that system and she puts that effort in ahead of time and then sticks with it for that week or two weeks ahead of time. If she's ever got to move anything, she makes sure she doesn't delete it, that she actually drags another <laughs> part on her calendar. And also networking, it's good. You should do it even though it's scary. Mm -hmm. Everybody's scared, just like dating, right? Like it's a first mover problem. Uh, and it's not just transactional, right? So it's sure it's strategic. It's fine to email people. It's fine to have goals, but uh, just, you know, you can enjoy this for uh, its own benefit. And then I think maybe all the Twitter conversation, I'll, I'll just boil down to just be a decent human being. <laughs> yeah. It'll be all right. Yeah. So Ignore the haters. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Try not to be the hater. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, great. Well, thank you so much for that summary. Jen, every week we like to ask our guests to give us, uh, to give our listeners our recommendation of the week. This could be some small tip to improve our lives. This could be anything, a podcast, wink, a book, a command, a concept, et cetera. Uh, what is your recommendation of the week? So I was very tempted to uh, make my recommendation of the week, The Bachelorette, which is starting oh, tonight. Oh, yeah, tomorrow. And I am oh, tonight, so yeah. excited. I've been waiting. Like much of Bachelor Nation, I've been waiting for this for <laughs> ages. Uh, but uh, on a more serious note, uh, a podcast I really enjoy is called Women at Work. And it's put out by the Harvard Business Review. And I find it to be just like really thoughtful and heartfelt. And it's basically conversations about navigating professional life as a human being. Um, and some topics are certainly more specific to women or being a minority in the workplace, um, but many aren't. And I think a lot of people would, would get a lot out of it. Um, and just like thinking through like the various challenges that we all run into in the workplace and how to navigate. And like, it's just like real talk about how to navigate them. And mm -hmm. I just really appreciate the hosts are just like super real and vulnerable That's awesome. um, about their own struggles. And especially in this current moment where I think everyone is struggling uh, with something to some degree or another, it's just, I find it really lovely to listen to stuff like that where people are being so real. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. check it out when they work podcast. Awesome. Alex, what's yours? All right. So one of my uh, undergraduate instructors is Bill Craighead. 
and he has this online list of tips for grad school. And one of his tips was use number two B lead. And I was like, this is so <laughs> silly. It's definitely a great tip. So I'm just totally okay. Taking it. Okay, that's <laughs> like it. That's slightly, a tip. It's slightly softer than normal pencil lead, and huh. it really helps with writing. And if you just buy like just a not crappy mechanical pencil, like one that costs like five dollars or something, mm-hmm. we'll make taking notes and whatever. Like I don't know. Like Ron Ohaka taught me econometrics, and that was basically a class where I wrote down everything and learned it later, um, and it made that experience doable. Right? I, I don't think I could have written that fast with mm-hmm. another writing instrument. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Sebastian, what do you have? Uh, my recommendation of the week, it's a, it's a double part. And I want, I think Jen to maybe help me on the second part. So first is I'm going to promote Jen's podcast, Probable Causation. It's a podcast on crime and, econo- and law and economics. Um, they're basic. She invites uh, other economists, also non-economists, I believe, who just do really good crime work and, uh, to talk about their papers. It's a great way, I think, to consume papers. So go check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes. And the second thing is a, t- is a tip that I learned from, from, from Jen, which is if you have the time and, and the money and you can make it this really cheap, take a, a, a work retreat. <laughs> um, and what this is, is, and Jen, you can maybe talk a little bit more about this, is you pick a weekend and you pick a place. I usually like to pick usually after a conference or before a conference where I'm just going there and I'm going there with a particular goal of, of working with something, someone. Usually I plan a dinner with like a friend that I have in that town. Um, and then that was like my social of, of, you know, time of the day. And then, you know, it's just the whole point is just you're flying there to work. Obviously that seems like really expensive for like grad students. Like, you know, if you can do it in a cheap way, uh, you can do it in a cheap way. I, it's not like I do it often, but I found it really awesome and relaxing. I don't, Jen, you want to add something to that? Yeah. So, oh my gosh, this is something I miss so much right now, writing retreats. I like, yeah, I used to do it totally on my own and I would basically go wherever the weather was nice in that particular season. So I did a lot of writing retreats, like in, like in Miami by the pool. Mm. Uh, and that was lovely. And they were like in Maine in the summer or something. Um, and only recently have I started inviting friends along on writing retreats and doing like joint writing retreats. And that is also fantastic. So right before the, uh, the lockdown started. I did a writing retreat in Scottsdale, Arizona with a couple of academic friends. And it was just such a, like, we basically work all day and then meet for drinks at awesome. five and, and dinner. And it was just a delightful way to like- Friends that have friends. kids too, right? So it's not they just- were, Yes. These, both of these particular friends had children. Right. So they like, right. you know, left the kids at home and they got right. lots of work done. And <laughs> yeah, uh, I did not, I don't have kids. So um, was just getting work done. Uh, but uh it's so it's possible. Such a lovely way. <laughs> you know. It's possible, but I just miss it so much. No, I'm already thinking like, all right, maybe in January, I can yeah. figure out, find some friends that will be willing to like isolate for a few days and take a COVID test or something and we can yeah. meet in the house. <laughs> there and, you go. That's great advice. I know it. people that do yeah. a less cool version of that for like two hours once a week, right? Where they're, mm. like, oh. they're like, oh, I go on a Zoom call with this person mm-hmm. and we write right. and then we hang out and like gripe to each yeah. other afterwards. Right. Yeah. Because awesome. I think the main key in kind of both of those things is like so much of our academic life is a marathon. And yeah. so just like having some time set aside every once in a while where you sprint is like just is really cool to realize how much you can get done yeah. during those sprints. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for being here in our podcast. If people want to find more information about you and your work, where should they go? My website is jenniferdoliak.com and I am, of course, on Twitter at Jennifer Doliak. Awesome. Thank you, Jen, and thanks, everyone, for tuning in. See you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Oh, it's so fun.